Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver. And today we will be talking about the major fights from this past weekend. We will do another Q&A session and I will give you my historical overview of my sixth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And that is the legendary, gone too soon, Sweet Pea, Pernell Whitaker. But before we begin the podcast, once again, I want to uh, tell everyone out there that for $5 a month extra, I have a special Patreon exclusive podcast, a 10 part series. Part one is done already. I'm recording part two later tonight on the life and times of Muhammad Ali, in which I take a look at the 10 most important fights of his career. And I do a watch along and I recreate the play by play by doing the play by play myself of each and every fight. The Patreon link is in, is in the description of the podcast. You click on there and you will see how to subscribe. And not only do you get my first and second part of the Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, you get my 10-part series from last season of the greatest upsets in boxing history. One of them is the Ali Liston first fight um, from February 25th, 1964. And I'm recording this on February 26th, the day after the 60, is it the 62nd anniversary? No, it can't be. Well, I was born in 68, so it can't be. Man, my, my math is off. The 59th anniversary of Muhammad Ali's shocking upset of Charles Sonny Liston to become the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. You also have a four-part four series that Gary Gonzalez, the CEO of Fight Game Media Network, and I did on the controversial Mike Tyson Hulu docuseries that aired last September. And you have Garrett, along with my buddy and his buddy, Duan, do an entire retrospective of the Rocky series. They review each and every Rocky movie up until Creed Three. And they talk about the backstory, um, what was going on, historical facts that you'll get from no other podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network Patreon podcast. So I highly recommend it. If you have that extra $5, please, this Ali series is a passion project of mine, and I really want you guys to hear what I consider the most thorough historical overview of the greatest and most famous athlete in the history of professional sports. And now on to this week's podcast. Before um I'm not even going to talk about that shit. Let's get let's get to Saturday night's card that was show that was shown on Showtime in which we had another incredible fight. We've had a great run of great fights this year so far. We haven't even hit March yet, and we've got like four or five. No, this is the fifth fight of the year candidate that we saw this past Saturday. But let's look at the first, the main fight on the undercard. Emmanuel Rodriguez 
at 140 pounds, defeated Joseph Adorno. It was a technical fight for the first five, six rounds. And then Rodriguez dropped Adorno and then carried the rest of the fight, knocked him down a second time to win a majority decision. And Emmanuel Rodriguez, since joining PBC after top rank, let him go, has, is on a like a three-fight winning streak. So um, Emmanuel Rodriguez... I don't consider him an elite fighter. I consider him a solid fighter. And this was a solid win over Joseph Adorno. He's a good gatekeeper. I'd like to see him fight other 140-pounders. Matter of fact, I wouldn't be mad if you had Emmanuel Rodriguez now step up and face the new IBF junior welterweight champion of the world. And, and once again, we have a Puerto Rican winning a world junior welterweight champion. We've had some of the greatest junior uh, Puerto Rican fighters of all time. We're also some of the greatest junior welterweights of all time. Carlos Ortiz. Will, well, Fred Benitez. Well, Fred Benitez at the age of 17 beat Kid Pambale Antonio Cervantes to become the youngest champion in the history of boxing. At the tender age of 17, back in 1976, America's bicentennial year, and a Puerto Rican born in the Bronx, migrated to Puerto Rico as a little boy, Wilfred Benitez, became the youngest boxer ever in boxing history to be a world champion. So you had Carlos Ortiz. You had um, Wilfred Benitez. You had Edwin Rosario. Um, Hector Camacho won a bogus junior welterweight title. I'm not even counting that shit. Get the WBO was gop. Well, it's garbage now, but back then it was it was <laughs> it was less than garbage. <laughs> um, Danny Garcia, who although born in Philadelphia, is 100% Puerto Rican, and now you have. Subriel Matias, who went through hell to defeat Jeremiah Ponce Saturday night in an incredible fight. Round one, Ponce came on, and he came at Matias, and he hit Matias with every punch in the book, and I'm like, oh, my God. Matias was getting rocked, but Matias stood ground. He never got hurt. He was just, like, biding time, and... Rounds two and three, Matias came back, and he was given better than, than than he gave. And then round four, I had Ponce winning as Ponce came back. And after four rounds, this was now my leading candidate for fight of the year. It was four rounds of brutality. Ladies and gentlemen, it reminded me of the first fight between Diego Corrales and Jose Luis Castillo. It was a war where both guys were taking turns pounding each other and they were inside no movement then late in the fifth round Matias staggered Ponce with a left hook then landed a devastating uppercut to the body Matias went I mean Ponce went down Ponce got up the bell saved him but his corner threw in the towel he was not allowed to come out for the sixth round Subriel Matias now the newest Puerto Rican world champion, 
There's only three right now. There's La Bamba, Jonathan Gonzalez, Amanda Serrano, and now Subriel Matias. Congratulations to Subriel. I would love to see a fight with him and Edwin Rodriguez. Subriel has a huge, huge, huge flaw, though. He has no defense whatsoever. He's a brawler. He he can't outbox you. A swift boxer can tire out Matias, run circles around him, make a miss, and win either by late KO or by uh, decision. Now, I predicted Matias between 8 and 10. So I got, I'm back on my winning streak. It was a fifth round knockout, but I predicted Matias would win by knockout. And so my streak continues. Congratulations to Subriel and Matias in a great fight, but it's not my fight of the year because even though the first four rounds was as great as any action you'll ever see, the finish of the fight where he drop Ponce and then Ponce didn't come out for the sixth round that has to deduct from all these great when compared to all these other great fights that happened this year so it's still a strong contender but it won't be my 2023 fight of the year now my leading candidate for comeback fight of the year won just a few hours ago as I uh, before I recorded this Badu Jack went to Dubai and he Fought a tremendous fight at the age of 39 against the WBC long-time reigning cruiserweight champion in Lungu Makuba. Makabu, Makabu. I always mess up Brother Makabu's uh, uh, name. Um, He dropped Makabu twice. He, even though Makabu was giving it this was another great fight ladies and gentlemen Macabu was landing some hellacious sh- uh, shots to the body combinations to the head Badu Jack I, I never saw him hurt once he hurt Macabu several times dropped him twice with the right cross and in the 12th round staggered him with another right cross had him ready to go he's ready to go and the referee stepped in Stop the fight. Badu Jack has now been a world champion in three weight classes, super middleweight, light heavyweight, and cruiserweight. Is he a Hall of Famer? No. No, he does not have Hall of Fame talent, and he doesn't have a name on his resume that's an all-time great that he beat. He beat a lot of good fighters. He's never beaten anybody that you sit back and say, wow, he beat such and such. So... I wouldn't put him in the box, but he's had a great career. He's had, And right now, if I was Badu, I'd get one more big payday. Maybe you could lure Canelo into a fight for your cruiserweight title. Canelo was talking about fighting Makabu at one time. Why don't you see if, if he fights Badu Jack? Give Badu Jack a, a, one last and one huge payday before he retires. And... My MVP of the week, my fighter of the weekend goes to Subriel Matias for his incredible fifth round knockout. Badu Jack was a close second, but I got to give it to Subriel. He he withstood a huge barrage in the first round from Ponce, came back to Knock him into into the ground, drop him, and basically the the Ponce quit on his corner, quit in his corner as the corner threw in the towel. So Subriel Matias is my fighter of the week. 
my MVP for the weekend that just passed. And finally, the I didn't watch this fight because I don't watch the fucking circus. But I've been telling people for years, all right, this, this clown's been around for three years now. And all these so-called media experts, so-called boxing experts were getting on me. Oh, how could you how could you rip Jake Paul? What he's doing is good for box. No, he's not. He's a fucking clown. He's a fucking idiot. He built his record on beating guys that never fought before, guys like a Ben Askren and Nate Robinson. They counted these as real wins. Are you fucking kidding me? And he lost to a guy that's not even an elite boxer. I told the world the minute he gets in with a real boxer, he's gonna lose. It would have happened last summer. Against Hasin Rockman if they didn't cancel the fight because nobody was buying tickets to see that fight. They had to go to Dubai to get uh to to, to get people to come see the fight. Now it was a great crowd. People out there starving for entertainment, right? You couldn't you wouldn't have sold that fight out in England. Get that bullshit the hell out of here. And Tommy Fury, don't act like you uh, uh beat anybody. You got knocked down by a stiff, all right, in the last round, and and you 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 fought safe. This is what I heard. I didn't watch the fight. I don't watch the circus acts. I saw the clip of the knockdown. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? You got dropped by a jab, Tommy Fury. The minute you step in with a real fighter at cruiserweight, you're getting your ass murdered. Jake Paul. You're a sideshow act. You're a fucking clown. Get this motherfucker the fuck out of here. Enough of the expletives, but circus animals do that to me. Now, on to my weekly Q&A session. Jake Paul, are you kidding me? I told you guys years ago this guy was a stiff. All right. Now we're on to the Ask Rob Silver portion of the podcast. Here we go. First question is from longtime listener LL School K. I would like to know from your perspective and expertise on the sport, who wins in a fantasy matchup, Tyson Fury versus Muhammad Ali? Ali, like my father said, was the perfect heavyweight from 1964 to 1967. There's not a fighter alive that ever lived, not Mike Tyson from 86 to 88. Not Lennox Lewis in the 1990s. Not Larry Holmes from 1978 to 1982. There's not a fighter. Joe Lewis from 1937 to 1941. There's not a fighter that ever lived that could have beaten at heavyweight the Muhammad Ali of 64 to 67. Tyson Fury wouldn't be able to bully Ali like he did all his other fighters. Because Ali would be moving and flicking that jab and making Fury miss and hitting Fury because Fury's defense is not that great. Okay, he got hit by Wilder when Wilder was done. All right, he got knocked down by by Wilder one, two, three times, four times. There is no way in the world Tyson Fury could have beaten Ali unless unless the fight went fifteen rounds. And the fight was in England, and they would have given Fury a robbery. Ali, now Fury has a lot of heart and great fighter, first battle Hall of Fame. I'm not taking anything from, away from Fury. Ali by lopsided 15-round decision because even a 1965-1966 Muhammad Ali doesn't knock out Tyson Fury because of the six-inch 
height differential. Fury 6'9", Ali 6'3", but Ali's going to be moving, landing combinations, making Fury miss. And he'd win something like 12 or 13 out of 15 rounds before winning a decision. Now, that's my opinion. If you guys disagree, everybody's entitled to their opinion. All right. Jesus Salas, another longtime contributor and listener. He asked, what are your top five unforgettable experiences at Madison Square Garden? Can be music or sports, including wrestling. Now, trying to think, because I have been to Madison Square Garden so many times, it's not funny. It's in my backyard. Matter of fact, today, my office is only three blocks away from Madison Square Garden. My office is on 31st Street and 10th Avenue by the West Side Highway. Madison Square Garden is on 31st Street and 7th Avenue. So... The five greatest experiences I witnessed at Madison Square Garden. Um, without, I'm not even going to rank these. I'm just going to throw it out there from what I've seen. The riot fight, July 1996, Andrew Galata versus Riddick Bowe. The foul pole and the riot that occurred was the most insane scene I ever saw at a sporting event that I ever witness live i had to hold my father from getting into the fight because he wanted to engage because ladies and gentlemen the media won't tell you it was a race riot it was polish fans fighting black fans in the audience that day after andrew galata was disqualified and riddick bowes security guard ran across the ring ring and smacked a lot in the head with his walkie-talkie broke the walkie-talkie over his head so that's definitely one of the greatest experiences I've ever seen in the history of me going to Madison Square Garden. Bernard Hopkins' destruction of Felix Tito Trinidad, September 29th, 2001. And this was, damn, this was exactly 14 months after my father died. Now, my father, I would have taken my father to the, to the, see this fight, but since my father had passed away the year before, I went to this fight by myself, and I was the only Puerto Rican Jesus in the entire garden that was rooting for Bernard Hopkins because I agreed with what my father said. As great as Felix Tito Trinidad was, he did not have the style to deal with Bernard Hopkins. Bernard Hopkins had one of the greatest chins. Bernard, Hop Bernard Hopkins won the great greatest counter, counter punches in the sport one of the greatest defensive fighters in the sport and Bernard that night knew what Felix was going to do before Felix did it and the atmosphere before the fight started was incredible because at least half the audience was Puerto Rican and they were loud but by the fourth fifth round the crowd was beginning to simmer down becoming real quiet as Bernard put on one of the greatest performances I've ever seen a fighter put on in the history of boxing. Another great night was the night I saw Azuma Nelson fight Salvador Sanchez, July 1982. It was Sanchez's last fight. Unbeknownst to us, we he, it was going to be his last fight because four weeks later, he died in an automobile accident in Mexico. No one knew who Azuma Nelson was. I didn't want to go to the fight at all, but my father forced me to go, and I'm glad he did. The greatest fight I've ever seen live. These two men went at it, and 
You saw the greatness of Salvador Sanchez, but you also saw a future great in Azuma Nelson. My father told me that night that Azuma Nelson was going to be a future great fighter. He could just tell because Azuma gave as good as he got that night and he fought with a lot of heart. And you could make an argument, and I've said this many times, that it was the greatest Mexican fighter beating the greatest African fighter in the history of boxing. So we've got three fights so far. I'm trying to think. Of, oh, okay. Here's another great experience for me. October of 1984, Michael Jordan's first game at Madison Square Garden. It was an exhibition game. I was the sports editor of my high school newspaper, uh, Graphic Communication Arts at the high school. I was going to 49th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan. So I got press passes because every year there would be a annual high school basketball game. Not a, It wasn't a high school basketball game, but an annual Nick exhibition game in which high school reporters from all over the city got free tickets to go see the game. So I got free tickets to go. And I went to see, I took my little brother, and I went to see what was Michael Jordan's first ever game against the Knicks in Madison Square Garden. Now, he had played in the Garden before with North Carolina. This was his first game as a Chicago Bull against the Knicks, and it was a dunk fest. Michael Jordan was dunking on the Knicks all night long. Now, I know it was an exhibition game and the defense is lax, but I was sitting there, and at the time, I was 16, and my brother was 12. And we're sitting there, and we're like, this guy's the real deal. I said, well, Charlie, we saw him in college. In college, he was a dunk, he was a dunk master, but here in the NBA... He's on a god-awful Bulls team, and everything centered around him, he's going to put up numbers. I never knew he'd wind up being the greatest basketball player I've ever seen. But that night in Madison Square Garden, he it was an appetizer for what the rest of the world was going to see the rest of his career. And the greatest experience I've ever been to at Madison Square Garden was June 1983 my father took me to see Davey Moore defend his WBA championship against Roberto Duran on Duran's birthday Duran was a huge underdog everybody thought Duran was washed up and Roberto Duran turned back the clock turned back the clock and gave Davey Moore a hellacious beating before knocking him out in the ninth round and when the fight was over the audience sang in unison happy birthday Roberto Duran had the entire Madison Square Madison Square Garden audience up on their feet. A phenomenal, phenomenal performance by Manos de Piedra, the hands of stone, Roberto Duran. And now I go on to a final question. I believe I have one more question. Let me see. Yep. And it's from my um my buddy Skis. Skis asks where, where's where's my question skis oh here is a great question 
and we would talk about circus acts. Well, I'm about to talk about a certain circus act here. Skis acts. How do you feel about Floyd doing exhibitions? Look, I'm not going to bemoan an individual for making as much money by doing the least. Floyd is making a ton of money fighting these exhibitions, which in which no way puts him in harm. So I'd rather Floyd fight these exhibitions than fight real fights. Because regardless of what people think, at 46 years old, Floyd Mayweather is not beating any elite boxers today. Okay, get that out of your head. It's not happening. All right. It's not happening. But he could beat these uh, karate guys and judo guys and sumo wrestlers and and mixed martial artists that don't know a thing about boxing and exhibition boxing fights. You know, he, he and he won't get hurt because these guys can't can't even touch a forty six year old Floyd. And Floyd gets paid big money, and if the promoters are losing money, that's their problem. I have no problem, Skis, with Floyd doing these uh, circus shows because he's getting paid and he's keeping his love of the sport at a minimum when it comes to damage being done to him. He won't get hurt in these fights. (laughs) So I'm glad that he's still making significant money without having to endure any real physical damage. Thanks again, Skis. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jesus, and thanks, thank, thank you, LL, for great questions. And now on to my sixth greatest fighter of the last forty-five years, Pernell Sweet P. Whitaker. And as I wrote, less than three years ago, the world of boxing suffered a huge loss with the death of arguably the greatest defensive fighter in the sport's history. Pernell Whitaker. Whitaker was struck by a car and killed while crossing the street near his home in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Media outlets around the world spoke highly of the man nicknamed Sweet Pea and about his incredible exploits inside the ring. It was another example of a fighter my father and I loved watch loved watching passing away. Whitaker was only 55 at the time of his death and in nine weeks I will be 55. Whitaker was still a young man in a world where people are living longer than ever. From the very first time my father and I saw him while winning a gold medal at the 1984 Summer Olympics, we knew we saw a special fighter. In addition to possibly being the greatest defensive fighter of all time, Whitaker is also my sixth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. After winning the lightweight gold medal at the 84 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, Whitaker immediately turned pro at the age of 20, right from the very outset of his career. My father and I saw how special of a fighter he was. He was a slick softball who practically had radar as he stood right in front of you and made you miss. To this day, I've yet to see another southpaw boxer land a right jab to the body like Purnell. Purnell, for a boxer with such a slick style, was a tremendous body puncher. His foot speed and hand speed was at the highest level among all-time boxing greats. The only thing that Whitaker seemed to lack was punching power. However, Whitaker's punching power was deceiving. He just never depended on it. Like Floyd Mayweather would do years later, Purnell depended on his incredible ring acumen and defense to win the vast majority of his fights by decision. 
It was Floyd's Uncle Roger who gave Purnell the toughest fight of his career as a lightweight. On March 28, 1987, in front of his hometown fans in Norfolk, Virginia, Whitaker faced the former 130-pound champion Mayweather in Whitaker's 12th fight of his career. In the opening stanza, Purnell knocked down and badly hurt Roger. Whitaker had completely dominated Mayweather until he walked into Roger's signature right cross. Whitaker went down like he was shot. While virtually out on his feet, Whitaker survived the first major hurdle of his career to win a convincing 12-round decision, earning him his first shot at a world title. It would also be his first disappointment in the ring. In only his 16th pro fight, Whitaker traveled to France in an attempt to wrest the WBC 135-pound title from the Mexican Jose Luis Ramirez. Ramirez was a very good but not great inside fighter with the prototypical Mexican aggressive style of boxing. This was a style tailor-made for Whitaker's counter-punching and defensive acumen. Whitaker fought a near-flawless fight as I had him winning 10 out of 12 rounds. Incredulously, Whitaker lost via split decision in one of the worst decisions in the history of boxing. This only heightened Whitaker's quest to become world champion. It would be the only blemish in his career as a lightweight, although a dubious one at best. Eleven months later, on February 18th, 1989, Whitaker wrested the IBF lightweight title from Greg Haugen in typical Whitaker fashion. Whitaker completely dominated the game Haugen in winning a very easy 12-round decision. Then after destroying an overmatched Louis Lomelli, Whitaker and Ramirez fought a second time on August 20th, 1989, once again in Whitaker's backyard in Norfolk. The fight was to unify Ramirez's WBC and Whitaker's IBF lightweight titles. And what was his finest performance up to this point of his career, Whitaker dominated Ramirez with incredible combinations and a radar-like defense. Ramirez desperately kept swinging for the fences and had nothing but air to show for it. Not only did Whitaker gain redemption after being shafted against Ramirez 17 months earlier, he also became the first 135-pound champion since Roberto Duran in 1978 to unify two of the alphabet titles at 135 pounds. Whitaker had one goal left at 135 to become the first undisputed lightweight champion since Duran. After After successfully defending his titles two more times, Whitaker met the WBA champion Juan Nazario on August 11th, 1990 in an effort to become the first 130-pound undisputed champion since Duran. With less than 10 seconds remaining in, the, remaining in the first round, Nazario walked into a blistering left hook that put him to sleep. The renowned defensive wizard proved that if needed, he had one-punch knockout power. Just like that, in less than three minutes, Sweepy had become the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. Whitaker would successfully defend his title three more times before moving up to 140 pounds in 1991. After a brief cup of coffee at 140, which resulted in Sweepy winning his second world title after defeating Rafael Pineda to capture the IBF version of the title, Whitaker took on WBC and lineal welterweight champion James Buddy McGirt on March 6, 1993 at the historic Master Square Garden. I took my father to see that fight as he was a huge fan of McGirt's. We both loved McGirt's style of counterpunching and his excellent educated left jab. It what turned out to be an excellent chess match between two ring technicians at the highest level, Whitaker won a well-deserved close decision to win his third world title. My father was extremely impressed with how Whitaker found a way to outbox a master technician in McGirt. It would be the beginning of an epic four-year run with Whitaker as welterweight champion. 
Whitaker's first title defense occurred on September 10, 1993, versus the undefeated biggest star in the sport at the time, the Mexican icon Julio Cesar Chavez. It was one of the rarest matchups as it pitted the consensus best two fighters of the world against each other. Neither the apartment I lived in at the time or my parents' apartment had been wired for cable yet, and closed-circuit viewing of boxing had become extinct. All major fights were now exclusively on pay-per-view. Since it was my parents' 35th wedding anniversary that night, the three of us went to my mother's stepfather's apartment to watch the fight. That night, Whitaker put on one of the single greatest technical, technical displays of master boxing. His display of defense and counterpunching was on a godlike level. I easily scored 10 of the 12 rounds for Sweepy. Unfortunately, only one judge saw it the same way. 99% of the world saw it. Chavez escaped with a draw in one of the five worst decisions in boxing history. Whitaker, unable to secure a rematch, soundly outpointed with McGirt a year later in the rematch before moving up to 154 pounds for one night in an attempt to make history. On March 4, 1995, Whitaker faced WBA junior middleweight champion Julio Cesar Vasquez in an attempt to become the fourth man up until that time to become a four-division champion. Despite being knocked down early in the fight, Whitaker was able to outmaneuver and outbox the much taller Lankhead champion to win a conv convincing decision. Whitaker immediately vacated the title he won for Vasquez and went back down to defend his lineal 147-pound title. Whitaker struggled mightily in three consecutive defenses as he barely defeated Wilfredo Rivera twice and in his January 24, 1997 defense against the speedy Cuban Dios Belis Hurtado, Whitaker looked older than his age of 33. Rumors of alcohol and drug abuse by Sweet Pea had begun to surface. My father believed Whitaker had began partaking in using cocaine and that it was beginning to take a toll on his body. Against Ultado, Whitaker had been knocked down twice and entering the 11th round was way behind on all three judges' scorecards. Both my father and I agreed that it was time for Whitaker to retire as we felt him losing to Ultado was a foregone conclusion. Shockingly, a desperate Whitaker came out aggressively in round 11 and in an all-out assault, staggered Hurtado and after landing several consecutive left crosses against a lifeless Hurtado who was trapped against the ropes, referee Arthur McCanny Jr. stopped the fight. Not only did Whitaker's miracle save his title, he kept alive his proposed fight against box office matinee idol Oscar De La Hoya. On April 12, 1997, Whitaker attempted to turn back the clock against the popular De La Hoya, who was nine years his junior. Whitaker put on the final defensive masterpiece of his career, frustrating De La Hoya throughout the 12 rounds and even scored a flash knockdown in the ninth round against the young heartthrob. Both my father and I had Whitaker winning seven of the 12 rounds. Inexplicably, all three judges had De La Hoya winning at least eight rounds as De La Hoya ended Whitaker's four-year 147-pound win reign in another controversial decision. Later that year, Whitaker's failed drug test followed, following a win was changed to a no decision. Whitaker will lose his next fight against the legendary Puerto Rican IBF 147-pound champion Felix Tito Trinidad on February 20th, 1999. I took my father to see this fight, which was held at Madison Square Garden. Whitaker looked much older than 35 that night as he endured the most punishment in a single fight of his illustrious career. Two years later, Whitaker injured his shoulder during his final fight against Carlos Boyorkas. Finally, at the age of 37, Whitaker finally called an end to his career.
Whitaker battled with drug abuse after his fight career ended. According to several reports, Whitaker had been clean for several years before his tragic death at the age of 55. On July 14, 2019, Whitaker was struck by a vehicle while he attempted to cross the street in his hometown of Virginia Beach, Virginia. When I heard about his death the following morning, I had to fight back tears. Whitaker was the prototype for fighters with innate defensive and counterpunching skills like Floyd Mayweather and Shakur Stevenson. Many of my boxing idols that I grew up watching have died such, a, uh, such horrific deaths. Whitaker, Alexis Arguello, and Sav Salvador Sanchez were the three greatest fighters I ever saw that died tragically and senseless senselessly. Pernell Sweet Pete Whitaker was one of the greatest defensive fighters that ever lived. He could stand right in front of you and you couldn't touch him with a baseball bat. His counterpunching was also at an elite level. Despite being only 5'5", five five, Whitaker successfully held the lineal welterweight title for a little over four years. I'll never forget seeing the slick southpaw for the first time during the 1984 Olympics. My father immediately predicted that Sweet Pete was going to have an historic career, and he was right. Whitaker would retire with a record of 40 wins, four losses and one draw, with 17 knockouts while winning legit world titles in four divisions. Purnell is more than deserving, more than deserving of his status as the sixth greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe there is a fight next week. Yes. Yes, it is. It's let me let me make sure I get this correct. I believe it's Mark Maxeo. Let me let me get this fight because I want to make a prediction on this fight. Hold on. Mark Maxeo is fighting next week. And he is fighting Brandon Figueroa. And ladies and gentlemen, this is another potential Donnybrook. This should be an incredible fight. Next Saturday, Mark Maxeo fights Brandon uh, Figueroa for a interim WBC uh, featherweight title. The fight will be held on Showtime. I've got Figueroa winning either by late stoppage or by close but unanimous decision. And maybe that could set up a fight with Fulton if Fulton, Stephen Fulton, if Stephen Fulton finds a way to beat Nayo and Noe in May. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Hopefully my new winning streak continues. Until next week. I wish all my listeners out there to continue to be blessed and be a blessing.